1: If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode.
0: Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday, the 4th of May, and this week I'm talking to Peter Gagan, Investigations Editor at Open Democracy and the author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, published last year. In recent months, he's written a series of pieces on those subjects for the LRB, on the way the government outsourced its pandemic response, on the difficulty of making freedom of information requests, and in the latest issue, on the Greensill scandal. Hello, Peter, and thank you very much for joining me.
1: Hello, Tom. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Kia was on the Today programme this morning, and he said that it was always his intention to offer constructive opposition to the government in the national interest. And what that means, he said, is that Labour supported the government on vaccinations and lockdowns, but has been highly critical of all the sleaze and dodgy contracts. Hussein, who was interviewing him, responded by pressing him on whether Labour would have done as well as the Tories on vaccination, suggesting that bringing in a venture capitalist, a prominent person from the private sector, was the sole key to the successful vaccination programme. Obviously, the vaccination programme has been a great success and Kate Bingham, as chair of the Vaccine Task Force, deserves some of the credit for that. But does that mean that it was the involvement of the private sector that made a big difference? The Greensill scandal you write in your piece has its origins in the long-standing belief that only private enterprise can shake up fusty Whitehall. To judge from the Today programme this morning, that belief is still alive and well, despite everything that's happened and everything that was dominating the headlines a week or two ago now seems to have all but disappeared from the media.
1: Well, if you take a kind of pullback on this and what we've been seeing over the last kind of few months and years, really, and actually probably decades, as, as I argue in my latest piece, is what we've seen is a huge kind of kind of advance of the private sector into delivery of public services in Britain. So now about a third of public services are outsourced to the the private sector. And that includes things like the pandemic, as we've seen the pandemic response. So what we saw at the start of the pandemic was lots and lots of government People who are close to government, what we call, you know, kind of people who are very close to Conservative Party were brought into government. So one example would be somebody like um, Lord Bethel, who is a kind of a former entrepreneur and who was brought in to help run the Department for Health. He also brought in Anthony Fellman, Lord Fellman, a former chairman of the Conservative Party, who again was brought into the Department of Health to try and kind of apparently at the time to source PPE personal protective equipment and as many people have written including myself there was a huge amount of these contracts that went to people who were very close to government so we saw this huge kind of as part of this outsourcing of government when it came to the pandemic and a lot of those contracts went to companies with great political connections some of which were very small you know hundreds of millions of pounds went to companies that had only been created 30 40 50 days previously a lot of them also went to big outsourcing companies companies like Circle these kind of huge outsourcers that have Become over the last 20 years and it didn't just happen under the Conservative government, it already started happening under the Labour government. These companies that became great big deliverers of uh, public sector goods. So these companies started to get huge contracts during the COVID pandemic as well. And it was one of the big issues with that was how these contracts were delivered. They were given out without normal due process, they're given out often without being put out to tender. At times, they're given out to companies that we now know were part of a specific lane in which politically connected companies. Companies were 10 times more likely to get government contracts. But at the same time, one of the things that happened, and I know I his report on was a lot of these contracts didn't go very well. So if you if you go back to what was called the uh, moonshot, this idea that we could test huge numbers of people really quickly, a lot of money was spent on that, 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 that really went nowhere. Track and trace is estimated to cost about £30 billion. That's a huge sum of money for the countryside of Britain. And by most accounts of it has failed. There's actually been academic analysis that struggled to find it having any kind of discernible kind of effect in terms of the spread of COVID. So that all went down. What happened then when the COVID crisis started? You know, they brought in consultants from Deloitte to start to look for PPE. They gave out the kind of contracts I'm talking about. And what's interesting with the vaccine rollout is it's actually gone back to being largely a public sector exercise vaccines are rolled out by the the already existing infrastructure that we have so venture capital was really important in terms of sourcing vaccines and britain i do think it's fair to say was very nimble and used its opportunities to get access to vaccines but the actual rollout of vaccines which is a crucial thing really it's one of the things that a number of european countries are struggling with it's less with actually sourcing vaccines it's often to do with rolling them out is that britain was already using its very sophisticated healthcare system that was well versed in doing this and i guess the argument a lot of people in Kirstarmer starmer and many in labour have made would be why weren't we doing that in the first place when it came to things like contract tracing why did we decide to outsource it to things like travel companies who had staff who'd never done anything like this before and then Ends up spending most of their time watching TV.
0: What is your answer to that question? Why is this? Because this is, a, as you say, it didn't just begin under Boris Johnson or, or his Tory predecessors. It's been decades in the making this, going back to New Labour and before that to the public private partnership. And uh, it's been the British government's way of doing things for years, if not decades.
1: I think what you have in Britain is a kind of mix of two things colliding. One is the kind of wider new public management agenda that we've seen for 40 years. And it's certainly not just a British-only invention. Although, interestingly, it kind of started in New Zealand and they've started to roll back from it. But the fundamental tenets of that is that, you know, it's the tenets of 70s and 80s, well, 80s, uh, Thatcherism and, and Reaganomics, were basically... The state isn't good at doing these things and we should we should get the private sector in. We, the way towards the best delivery of public services is through a mix of privatisation and outsourcing. So that's the kind of overarching world within which government decisions are made. But also in Britain, we've got long running connections between business and government and a sense that overarches, I think, especially from the city of London, that the city and the kind of way of doing things that comes from business is the way to is the best solution to things. So what I was really struck with so to take back to the pandemics when the pandemic struck rather than kind of thinking okay right what's the way in which a government a state should function with this how should the state apparatus address this the cabinet office which is the lead driver of government policy within the British government the British government's got quite an archaic system in some respects and the cabinet office is the department that's really supposed to drive whatever the prime minister wants to do so the cabinet office secretary is Michael Gove who's very close to Boris Johnson although uh, with a quite a Relationship too. So, the Cabinet Office, this is the department that has to deal with these things. What happens? The first thing you do is you, you bring in Deloitte, you bring in consultancies, and you bring in a number of other consultants too to operate various aspects of the pandemic response. And I guess I would argue that one of the reasons that Britain really struggled at the start of the pandemic was this. Over reliance on bringing in outside uh, expertise, and because a lot of these expertise didn't really have all that familiarity with the systems which they were trying to run, they were being paid huge amounts of money to, like, kind of six thousand pounds a day. But the kind of over, the 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 nexus at the centre for it was this idea that we to do to do this significant public work, we need to get the private sector in to run it for us.
0: Because once upon a time, that work would have been done mm-hmm. by the civil service. I mean, that's the purpose of the civil service is to carry out. That work of government. But of course, there have been massive cuts over the last 10 years, possibly longer to the number of civil servants that we have. So the answer is we've sacked all these people. There's no one to do the job. Let's bring in the private sector to do it instead.
1: And often, as we've seen, and we'll talk about it more, I'm sure, with the, the lobbying scandal that's gone around David Cameron and Greensill, a running tread throughout that is that role of the private sector and encouraging civil servants to move from uh, pri- from the pri- public sector into the private sector and back again. And that's been a kind of constant, kind of almost hamster wheel, what we call the revolving door. And the revolving door has actually become arguably an even greater part of government as we've seen more and more people pass from senior civil service jobs into the private sector and back again.
0: Okay, so on that, the question of Greensill, which you so it was the, the biggest lobbying scandal in a generation was the way it was being described in the press. The, the papers which don't seem to be talking about it anymore. So I don't, do you just want to briefly or even not so briefly go through what it was, what happened, who Greensill, Lex Greensill is and how he got so deeply embedded in government?
1: So the Greensill scandal has been kind of described, as you say, as as the biggest lobbying scandal in a generation. And I must confess, as this story has gone on, as somebody who spent a number of years writing about these issues, I felt a little bit like the kind of indie kid whose band suddenly becomes really big. And you're a bit like, oh, I was there before that and I had the t-shirt. And because in so many respects, what we're seeing is not that surprising. You know, it's a product of, of a system that we already knew didn't work but to kind of roll it back and see what 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 exactly happened lex Greensill, who's a, who's a australian financier this tall rangy uh, son of queensland sugar plantation farmers he ends up working in the city of london in the early 2000s and he's got this his big idea which is called um it's called reverse factoring it's called supply chain financing which is a bit has a bit of a whiff of the kind of financial crash alchemy about it essentially what his big idea is is he sells to companies that he will pay their invoices up front for a fee and then they will settle it down the line to kind of solve the gap in theory, between the time it takes someone to pay an invoice and the kind of the demand of an invoice holder to want that money quicker, and so he ends up he while he 's in the city of London, he meets a guy called Jeremy Haywood and Jeremy Haywood is a very well known man at that stage already he's working in the city he's gone he's left government he had been very very key in the Blair government and he'd also been he'd been implicated in the Hutton inquiry into the debt of david C- Kelly um, over Dr. David Kelly. Uh, in the wake of the Iraq war. So Hayward goes into, go- into the city of London and starts working. He meets Lex Greensill and he's very impressed by this guy. This young guy who seems very charismatic. Then when Gordon Brown becomes Prime Minister, he brings back in Jeremy Haywood. And Jeremy Haywood then, when David Cameron is a change of government in 2010, in the run-up to that general election, David Cameron is talking about how lobbying is this great scandal waiting to happen. He famously talks about what he calls a quiet word, these cosy business relationships. He's going to break up this cartel. So David Cameron ends up in government and Jeremy Haywood becomes his Cabinet Secretary, a very, very important position. And Jeremy Hayward is making the case for bringing Lex Greensill into government. He's saying this guy really knows what he's doing. He's a really interesting guy. He's got solutions for people like us. Uh, who can He can help us run government better. So Greensill ends up getting... He gets a desk in a cabinet office. He gets a number 10 email address. He gets meetings with all these different uh, permanent secretaries with departments. Basically, all the doors of Westminster are open to Lex Greensill. And this is when David Cameron's in power. And so it's worth almost just parking for sector there 's almost two issues parts of this scandal, which I try and tease out a little bit. One is the first bit we 're talking about here really is this relationship between the private sector and the public sector and government, and the second bit is the lobbying which comes later. So Lex Greensill at this point is still in government. He becomes what's called a um, a UK Crown Representative is the term. And these are people who are appointed often quite quietly on behalf of the uh, public sector to liaise with businesses. And what's almost interesting about aspects of this scandal is, is because it became such a big issue in British politics aspects of how Britain is just works were then being reported as news so these UK crown representatives there's 22 of them it's been a reasonably long-standing thing it was brought in again by David Cameron as a reform to try and improve the relationship between business and government that was reported in the Daily Mail a couple of weeks ago as 22 green cells waiting to happen. And they just listed the names of all the UK Crown representatives and had to put a little footnote at the end to say we're not alleging any wrongdoing against any of them. But I thought it was an interesting illustration of how we just don't know about how these systems of government work. They kind of are clandestine in some respects or at least shroud in some secrecy. So green cell is in the middle of government and this is all happening. And then in 2016, David Cameron calls the Brexit election lose the Brexit election, is out of office. And at that stage, Lex Greensill's role at the centre of government seems to have ended. Fast forward two years, and by the middle of 2018, David Cameron's already taken up some advisory positions. He's on the board of a couple of different companies, one of which is a US data firm called Infinity. He's a consultant for another biotech company. He starts giving lots of speeches. Then in August 2018, he takes up a role as a consultant with Greensill. And August 2018 is interesting because it's two years and one month after David Cameron leaves office. There's a thing called the Advisory Commission on Business Appointments, way, uh, kind of over-wrought uh, over name ACOBA. That's where ministers and former senior civil servants have to register if they want to take an outside job. You have to register with ACOBA within the two years after you leave office and you can't do anything for two years. David Cameron waits until one month after that two-year limit to then join Greensill. And he takes up, he, as part of his pay package, you get share options. The value of these share options seems to be actually quite changing quite quickly. Cameron has said, look, they really weren't worth all that much The Financial Times is reporting they're worth up to $70 million. We've also seen some uh, presentations that were leaked to the Guardian that suggested at a flotation value of Greensill, because there were options if Greensill was to float in the stock market, they could be worth up to about £200 million. And I know from talking to some people when I was researching this piece that Apparently David Cameron really was didn't want to end up like Tony Blair. So Tony Blair after he left office has done he set up the Tony Blair Foundation. He's also done a lot of consultancy for some questionable governments around the world. The Kazakh Kazakhstan government, lots of other governments. He's been seen as kind of it's been seen as a bit research, it's been seen as a bit a uh, revisted he's kind of in the background. Tony Blair seems to be popping up all the time. Apparently Cameron didn't want to do this. He wanted to have basically one big flagship payday and then he could do lots of other little bits of, uh, you know, kind of charitable works. Unfortunately, this strategy really hasn't worked, as we know, for, for David Cameron. But as part of this, he joins Greensill, becomes an advisor and he starts basically lobbying on Greensill's behalf. He does things like go for tea with uh, Mohammed bin Salman and in Saudi Arabia there's lots of press photographs of him sitting in the desert. He lobbies Barack Obama apparently to have a meeting with Greensill and he also lobbies his former colleagues in government. And this is what in many ways the heart of this scandal has been over the last few weeks is things like text messages between David Cameron and senior government ministers in the current administration. So what happened was Fast forward to the start of the pandemic, really, in the start of 2020, David Cameron has been lobbying a lot for Greensill, selling his products, saying how great he is, trying to get government work, government contracts for Greensill. But then at this stage, at the start of the pandemic, Greensill's company is in, is in trouble. There's a credit squeeze generally. And Lex Greensill at this stage, he wants to get on what's called the COVID Corporate Financing Facility, CFFP, which is this government um, idea that big companies like Property Rolls-Royce companies can apply for emergency credit to try and like kind of offset the problem when the pandemic strikes. What's really strange about this is that Green Cells Company is not the kind of company that should be getting this kind of money. It's quite obvious to even a lay person looking at this. But nonetheless, David Cameron starts texting Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor pushing him to see if he can get on this scheme. He starts calling other contacts. He calls he calls Boris Johnson's advisors. He calls other government ministers who he used to knew in office, John Glenn, Jesse Norman. He starts kind of lobbying quite furiously on behalf of Greensill. And this doesn't work. Um, he's unable to get on to this scheme, although Greensill does get a significant amount of government COVID loans. And I think that could be a big question in Whereas to come is about even Greensill getting that government money, but he constantly Cameron then also he he lobbies a a number of other uh, former colleagues. We know he'd gone to have drinks with Matt Hancock, the health secretary, again to try and press him to take up Greensill products. So the heart of the issue here is that you know David Cameron did all this lobbying but under the lobbying reforms that David Cameron himself brought in brought in in 2014 this much vaunted lobbying act so having said i'm going to change lobbying cameron brings in these reforms the reforms are, are a joke frankly and everybody in the lobbying world knows they're a joke most professional lobbyists even before this scandal had broken were disliked these rules massively because they kind of tended to hit professional lobbyists and miss a lot of this kind of lobbying like what David Cameron was doing. And actually, one lobbyist I spoke to said to me, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at all the lobbying scandals, there's rarely a professional lobbying and lobbyist involved. They're involving people like Cameron. So... Cameron's reforms meant that you only basically have to register if you're meeting government ministers and you only have to register if you're a third party. So Cameron was in what's called uh, nominally an in house lobbyist, which means he should have been he was an employee of Greensill, even though he doesn't seem to have, he seems to have been a very part time employee. So there's going to be an investigation into this to see if any rules are broken. It seems unlikely that they have been. But what it does show is, again, is the kind of. On the one hand is how poor the lobbying laws are and how how diaphanous and how thin they are and how easily they are got around and this very easy access that that former senior politicians can have with their colleagues. But at the base of it too is this huge reliance and this huge dependence on, um, and this huge privileging of private sector experience and private sector views on public sector working. But one thing
0: about all of that, which seems I mean it was in the papers it was in the news it is clearly scandalous but it doesn't seem to have cut through with voters at all already I mean I know I don't know if it's partly because this the whole business of what Greensill did with the kind of the payday loans but (laughs) but they're not payday loans and and the kind of getting your head around how that that works i mean, like I can't even remember. I read the, the names of the process so many times, and you've said it just now, and I still can't remember what the words are. Remind me.
1: Uh, it's called reverse factoring or uh, supply chain fi- supply chain financing
0: Reverse factoring, supply chain finance. It's very hard for that stuff, both us, <laughs>
1: including me. So what I it's very
0: easy for eyes to glaze over when this sort of thing gets talked about, which is one of the you know reasons. I guess you use people use these names for it and. And even the, that, you know, the huge number of the, the sum of money for, that was spent on test and trace with possibly zero effect, you know, the 30, 30 billion, 20 billion, tens of billions anyway, these things sort of somehow don't cut through. Whereas what did seem to cut through more, although it's fallen away, is the, the unresolved question of who lent Boris Johnson the money to pay for the refurbishment of his Downing Street flat. Because the idea that you'd spend 58,000, 56, 58,000. 58. 000, 58. 58 <laughs> you'd spend the idea of someone spending fifty-eight thousand pounds refurbishing refurbishing their flat when you know in hartlepool or in plymouth you can buy a flat for that amount of money that seemed to that's something that people could get a hold on as being and yet even that has fallen away because johnson you know, yesterday he was in Hartlepool campaigning and he was asked if a Conservative donor, as had been reported in the Sunday Times, had been asked to pay for his son's nanny. And he replied, all this kind of stuff is exclusively for the interest of the Westminster bubble. I know other parties want to focus on all sorts of trivia, but it isn't trivial, is it? If the, This question of where the money's coming from, and I mean, it's massively important to you know whether or not we live in a democracy.
1: In some respects, I think the, the Boris Johnson flat referendum story is more important than the David Cameron story and I think there's a couple of reasons for it the first is I think we're almost we we know what we know about the David Cameron story there's going to be some investigations there's going to be parliamentary committees I think there'll be a lot more uh, heat but there might be all that much more light the facts are kind of pretty much there I think and we can make a judgments on those facts it'll probably be found Cameron broke no rules because the rules are so poor we might have some sort of you know retrospective fig leaf uh, changed around them which probably almost certainly will try and make it harder for things like charities and trade unions to operate too, because that's often how a conservative government approaches kind of tightening up lobbying is to try and aim for those too. But broadly we we will we know what's happened. The Boris Johnson um rumbling scandal, which you know at Open Democracy we started writing about this back at the start of April. We had some uh, we had some little inside lines on this about about this flat refurbishment and when I first saw the story I was like okay I'm I'm struggling again I'm struggling to figure out understand this exactly what's happening here I think this is a case with a lot of scandalous stories and you can tell from my accent I'm Irish this is often a case with a lot of the long-running political scandals and money scandals we had with Irish politics too is that they can become quite naughty because often they are quite convoluted they're rarely straightforward schemes, but once you start looking at the David at, at the Boris Johnson refurbishment story, effectively what it is is that, you know, he refurbished his flat. I'm sure, you know, I apologise to listeners if if they've read all about this in the papers, but you know, he refurbished a flat at Downing Street, number eleven Downing Street. He got in this fancy designer, Lulu Little, who apparently is big into gold and shins, and we we all saw the pictures of it. You know, why couldn't he use John Lewis? Indeed, but. This is so he decided he wanted to refurbish the flat, but he couldn't afford to do it. So what he did was he the idea they basically came up with this wheeze, which was they would set up a charitable trust to redo his flat. You know, just think about that. You know, it's a completely ridiculous idea. So number of, they wanted to set up a charity just to do up his flat. It makes you go, can I do that too? Can I set up a charity for my living room? So this is this is the wheeze they come up with. Um and they they basically ruled with this. They got somebody to do, do it up. They sent in a bill. They tried to get the civil service to pay for it and the civil service said no. Conservative Party headquarters paid the bill apparently. The idea was we'd have this trust, which could then put the money back into the party without anybody seeing it. Lord Brownlaw, David Brownlaw, uh, you know, former Tory vice chair, big Tory donors, given £3 million to the party over the years. Apparently likes making um, Lego models of the Taj Mahal, amongst other things. He says, I'll step up and I'll I'll write a cheque for this. So he writes a cheque for uh, £58,000 and then... Lo and behold that money then um, basically apparently was paid back to him but it seems to have gone to Boris Johnson first and foremost then was paid back to David uh, Brownlow reportedly and Boris Johnson now says he paid for the for all the he paid for the refurbishments because partly because Simon Case who's a cabinet secretary said they'd looked into it and they realized they couldn't actually set up a charitable trust to redo the house to redo the flat because it's not a it's a private residence it's not a public space shock horror and what the conservative party are now saying is that we are not currently Paying this bill, of course, you're not currently paying the bill. No one's currently paying a bill. The bill is either paid or it's not paid. And so, fundamentally, at the root of this is a bunch of really, really interesting questions. Actually, one of them is the suggestion that there's more than one donor. David Brown was not the only donor. The the other question is how did Boris Johnson pay back this fifty eight thousand pounds? The Sunday Times uh, this weekend had a big piece about how can Boris Johnson afford his lifestyle, which, to be honest, a question I and others have been asking privately for a while. He's a man with huge expenses. And he
0: said, didn't he, he needs £300,000 just to keep his head above water.
1: Yes, exactly. Which is, you know, again, kind of speaks to it's not exactly every man. And his salary isn't £300,000. He used to get north of a quarter of a million pounds for writing a weekly to Daily Telegraph column, which he doesn't get anymore on top of his MP's salary. So he actually took a huge pay cut to become Prime Minister. And many people interested in this sort of stuff have been asking for a long time, how is he supporting himself? So the Sunday Times now reporting that Boris Johnson took out a commercial loan. So this is one of the big things here then. So if Boris Johnson took out a commercial loan, well, where can we see it? Because it's not in the Register of Ministerial Interests because they haven't published this twice yearly registered ministerial interest for almost a year. There's a huge transparency gap at the middle of it. But if you pull the lens back even further, what you've got is uh, fundamentally you have a private residence been done up with a, with a donor's money. So, And money is the heart of this. So money, if someone's giving money, what are they getting? What is the quid pro quo on this? You know, is it... Siege in the House of Lords, Lord Brown only has one of those. Maybe it's something else. We don't know. Maybe it's nothing. It could be a perfectly innocent gift. But the point is, we can't know because we don't know what's happening. We would never have known about this donation if it wasn't for reporting. Um, you know, we've seen Dominic Cummings has also said has written about it in his blog and said it was uh, unethical and possibly illegal. But if it hadn't been for all this, we would have really not have any idea that this this money had ever changed hands because it hadn't been reported to the Electoral Commission. So all of these processes that we're, we have. These supposed ideas, which all comes back from 25 years ago and the last kind of moment of huge political drama around Tory sleaze and uh, John Major, these kind of don't work at all anymore. And we're kind of seeing it. And the the refurb story kind of takes what can be quite a rarefied, complicated thing and gives it a human form in a way that I do think people will can look at it and go, bloody hell, what's actually going on with that? why is a donor paying for you know paying for a, a, a well a, you can say nice or not nice depending on what your taste is you know city and and, uh, and curtains and the same phrase you know why are is the prime minister soliciting party donors to pay for his nanny and this is the kind of thing that we haven't seen it to this extent in british politics before and does look like something that you would see uh you know in in a very different in a country in which things are run at a very different it doesn't look like you know a kind of normal state it doesn't look like a state certainly that's free of corruption or free of cronyism
0: and the electoral commission are investigating the, the flat refurbishment business aren't they
1: the electoral commission are investigating it because because this donation wasn't declared but it's quite easy as well. I, I write my book a lot about the Electrical Commission. I interviewed them and people at the Electrical Commission, a number of them for the book, some of them on the record, some of them off the record. It's quite easy to then think right, the Electrical Commission, you know, the knights in armour have come to to the rescue. But what you have to remember is that these are tiny bodies. The electoral commissions. you know, half a floor of a bit of an office block in the centre of London. That's, you know, a couple, a hundred staff or so has a tendency not to want to get involved in political issues if it can avoid it. The Conservative Party has already suggested in its submission to another inquiry that's going on into standards and British public life that the Electoral Commission's remit should be narrowed or the organisation should be abolished altogether. So which gives you a sense of where the Conservative spirit is with things like regulation. And there's a wider point. It's almost a corollary of the entrance of the private sector into government. The idea then what happened was we would set up systems of regulation. We would be protected because we'd all this great regulation, it would make sure that things worked well. The problem is once you really look at the regulation, once you really look at how regulation works, it rarely functions like that at all. So just to give one example, last week, finally, after eight months, the Prime Minister announced that he was going to appoint an independent advisor on ministerial standards. So again the cavalry is coming to the rescue this is the other so the uh, ministerial uh, standards advisor is going to come we haven't had one since Alex Allen resigned back in October he resigned because Boris Johnson refused to initiate an investigation and kind of proceedings against Priti Patel after she was accused and found to have been bullying in the home office Alex Allen career civil servant said look I'm out of here I'm not doing this anymore so finally however many months later we have an independent advisor but the independent advisor is appointed by the Prime Minister he can only make recommendations as Alex Allen did in the Priti Patel case you should investigate only one person is allowed to to kind of make the final judgments on whether there should be a full investigation and any action taken. That's the prime minister. So you can kind of see the circle here. And actually, the person who's taking the job, Christopher Gett, who's a former um, personal secretary to Queen, even he, in some respects, could be seen as a slight kind of slide in standards because until now that advisor role has always been a career civil servant. Gett isn't a career civil servant. He has lots of business interests. He's an advisor to the arms manufacturer BA systems, for example. He intends, it seems, to keep those positions. So there's, again, even more opportunities for conflicts of interest within it. But at the root is this idea that, you know, it's quite easy, I think, to go, oh, my God, the actual commissioner investigating, you know, it'll all be okay. But I think there's there's a real issue there, too, because the regulations often fails. The one proviso on that is that, If the Electoral Commission does find that the Conservatives broke the law, and if if you don't declare a political donation like this, it is a breach of the law, then it could become difficult because it then becomes, you know, I'm talking to you from Glasgow, the Scottish Conservative leader has said that, Douglas Ross has said that if Boris Johnson has been found to break ministerial code he'll have to go because that follows this long campaign from the Scottish Conservatives saying that Nicola Sturgeon would have to go if she broke the ministerial code or she should go anyway. So they're kind of enforced to it. So it, there is a potential that some of these investigations do throw up very unwelcome things for the Prime Minister, even if the regulations themselves can seem a bit toothless.
0: Yeah, I was going to bring up that question of Douglas Ross saying that Johnson should resign if the Electoral Commission doesn't find evidence of wrongdoing but then I mean once upon a time a great many members of Boris Johnson's cabinet would have been expected to resign in the old days that when Priti Patel was found that there was evidence that she had been bullying people at the home office the business of Robert Jenrick and the planning permission into our Hamlets and Johnson himself and it seems that it used to be that there was a scandal there was evidence that it there was some foundation to it the minister in question would resign, and that was the way it was done. But Johnson and his cabinet have shown that if you don't resign, then you carry on and nothing happens and everyone forgets about it and on to the next thing. And in a sense that, you know, there are elections coming up on Thursday. For electoral reasons, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives needs to say that. But he can say that today, but then when eventually the Electoral Commission makes its findings, if it were to find evidence of wrongdoing and Boris Johnson would not to resign, that doesn't mean that Douglas Ross is then going to resign as leader of the Scottish Conservatives because he'd called for Johnson to resign and he hadn't. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, how, what, how does anything happen?
1: I apologise for the rustling of papers. It's actually, I'm just pulling up Ferdinand Mount's great piece from the latest issue of the paper in which he says that ministers stick like barnacles to their ministerial posts with Johnson's encouragement. And I think that's exactly it. They will limp it like Cling on. We've seen your know, Robert Jenrick refuse to resign despite admitting apparent bias in overturning a planning application that massively benefited a Conservative donor, Richard Desmond, who he just so happened to be sitting next to at a Conservative Party fundraiser. You, know, We've had seen so many conflicts of interest. We've seen exactly we've seen the kind of what we would have seen as the things that would end a career have just haven't now. And I think there's, that's a really interesting aspect, again, about this whole thing about investigations and about, you know, about the wider kind of infrastructure of how you go about regulating these things. So a lot of the infrastructure we have, what's called the Commission on Standards and Public Life, that dates back from the Nolan principles from 1995. John Major's government besieged by sleaze. He says, look, we're going to do something about it. The Nolan principles come out, are, are produced by a former uh, senior judge and this commission on standards and public life but at the root of that is this idea that people will behave honorably people will do the right thing so if you're found to broke the ministerial code we can't push you out the door but we expect that you'll resign it's the expectation it's the same i mentioned to start this advisory commission on business appointments that just basically rubber stamps um former senior civil servants and government ministers jobs in the private sector the idea with that is they never say no to anything but the idea is that they will have a back and forth with you privately and you will not put forward something that's just not a good thing to do the problem is the current and we've seen this for a number of years just rough show over that Boris Johnson took three days after resigning as foreign secretary Boris Johnson signed a deal with the Daily Telegraph to go back to writing his quarter million pound a year column he didn't go near ACA but he, what conflict of interest could there possibly be between a former government minister writing a weekly newspaper column for a significant amount of money for a pair of you know uh, uh, kind of uh, plutocrat donors uh, who live in it in who are tax exiles what possible conflict of interest Could there be there? And this is the this is a huge thing that's at the root of this is that if the culture shifts so much. And you're basing this idea there's norms and conventions because what Johnson has actually shown, I think, over the last few years in the name of taking back control of sovereignty is this huge both centralization of power in the executive in Britain, a kind of pull of power away from, from the devolved uh, administrations, but also how little kind of laws or kind of strictures there are around basically lying in public office or, or refusing to do anything about it. And we've seen, so Boris Johnson, we've seen him disseminate so often, you know, um, and to a point where he refused to ask, answer these questions about did he ask donors to pay for his nanny, which suggests normally if Boris Johnson's refusing to answer questions about something, it suggests he certainly did it. You know, he was asked about this comment about um, that was leaked clearly from Dominic Cummings about that he would rather see the bodies pile up in their thousands than introduced under lockdown. When he was asked about that it was reported you know Boris Johnson firmly denies it. You looked at the video and it was like that is not a man firmly denying anything. He kind of was grinning and going no no I wouldn't possibly say that. And so we live in a public life so it's not a surprise if the culture comes from the top it's not at all a surprise that this administration more than any other has taken all these norms and all these conventions of public life basically shredded them And decided that they would continue. You know that they don't apply anymore. And you have these. You have to almost feel sorry for um, these people who are in these jobs, like the commissioner on standards or uh, the electoral commission, because what they are attempting to do is use instruments that were really supposed to kind of nudge, uh, which was a favourite thing of David Cameron, the nudge unit, nudge people towards good behaviour, nudge politicians towards good behaviour. And it just so happens it shows that 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 doesn't work.
0: And as with uh, what has happened with the um, with officer. Priti Patel didn't resign. That the guy who'd recommended that she do resigned himself, because what else can you do? And that happened again with the A level fiasco last summer. That Gavin Williamson didn't resign, but the,
1: the civil servant did. So what happened? What happened in both instances really is the regulator resigned rather than the regulated. Because again, well, what, what more can they do? But then you have this.
0: I mean, like, yeah, you say norms, conventions an idea of of honour, I suppose, which is whatever that may be. But the, that, I mean, I do find it astonishing, that question, that thing that, you know, Johnson quoted as saying he would rather see the bodies pile high in their thousands. And they have. 130,000 people have died of COVID. And yet, they, are, the Tories are still ahead in the polls. They look set to take Hartlepool from Labour in the by-election on Thursday. The, you know, there are mayoralties that they may win. The kind of, the way in which this, I mean, maybe that's a delay in the polling and that the polls are showing how people were thinking weeks ago, and I know all that. But it... It still seems truly astonishing to me that a government that has behaved in this way and talks in this way is yet so popular.
1: The big television show of the last few months has been The Line of Duty. It just ended on Sunday night and... I for my sins have also been watching it like well, it's, we've been locked down there's not that much else to do even if it's quite wooden But so any, and at the end of it the most wooden character of them all Adrian Dunbar's character Ted Hastings so he's the man he's the head of this anti-corruption unit AC12 and he's kind of he's been implicated in you know he's the guy who has been investigating all this but it turns out he has not been squeaky clean himself and he goes in and gives this speech about trust and accountability in public life, essentially. He basically starts repeating the Nolan principles. And it's the kind of, it's the denouement of these six seasons. You know, all millions and millions of people are watching this man and kind of almost applauding his commitment to public service, his commitment to probity in public life. And it, it's the the kind of juxtaposition of that against the current climate, I found absolutely fascinating because next morning, you know, Boris Johnson's been interviewed in Hartley Pool and saying it doesn't matter if I ask a donor if they can um, pay for a nanny for my newborn baby. That doesn't matter. That's just a bubble issue. These things don't really matter. And I guess that's a huge. It's actually a huge question for Britain in some respects. Like, at what point do these things matter? And if they don't matter, what is it that we're supposed to be defending? What is this? great parliamentary sovereignty, this great idea of parliamentary primacy, that seems to be so hardwired into British politics. And in some ways, it also speaks to another huge interest of mine, the huge interest of the country this week and probably into the future, which is the future of the United Kingdom itself. Because if this is what the United Kingdom is, you know, well, then that's a huge issue, I think. And I think, you know, if, it, if this is what the kind of great parliamentary mother of parliament looks like, and it can be allowed to be debased to this extent without anybody... In government seeming to care about it, there hasn't been really any noises off from within government, from within the cabinet, about any of these things. Well, then, you know what is this? What is the what is at the root of um, of the union itself? And these issues, I think, probably resonate particularly in places where the Conservative Party aren't particularly popular outside of, especially outside of England, really. And they do play into much wider concerns about whether Westminster itself can be trusted to govern well.
0: Yeah, but let's talk about that a bit because the SNP. Looks set to win very strongly in in Scotland, and there's talk. Will that be a mandate for another independence referendum? And I know you know you've written about about that for us in the past. And what are the chances of a, of an independent Scotland in the next however many years?
1: Well, what's really fascinating is that you know. Boris Johnson said there will not be another referendum. And there's been this real turn towards what you could call a very muscular unionism. So you've got this this idea that basically Westminster can do it at once. Post-Brexit, parliamentary sovereignty, Westminster can do it at once. And there won't be another referendum come what may. And in many respects, I think it plays really well in England. It's the kind of image I think the Conservative Party can see selling really well in England. It doesn't play well, I think, in Scotland. It doesn't play well in Wales and it doesn't play well in Northern Ireland either. And so what you've seen is we're seeing more and more of these two things butting up against each other. So the Scottish Conservative Party would have hoped to go into this election if it had been three or four years ago. In some respects, almost hoping that somehow it was possible to end up in government. That was the former Conservative Party leader in Scotland's Ruth Davidson's, basically, idea, you could have a Tory first minister. That's certainly not going to happen. Nicola Sturgeon is going to win. The question is just how much of a win it is. Does Alex Salmons kind of insurgent Alba party take votes away from it? Does it end up with, or does it put more pro-independence people in Holyrood? And then you're going to end up, I think we are going to get to that question, is there going to be another referendum? And Boris Johnson looks as if he will not mandate one. I can totally see that would be his strategy. But in some ways, what I find really fascinating is that there seems to be a large section of the Conservative commentator class, in, especially in London, who've decided that because Boris Johnson doesn't have to hold another referendum and because it will play well for him politically in places like Hartlepool that's going to vote this week, that that becomes then the right thing to do, both morally and in the long term, politically. And I think it's kind of quite disastrous. I do. It's not hard to get to the point where you have... A big desire for independence in Scotland that doesn't either end up in a referendum or doesn't end up in a referendum anytime soon. But the constitutional question just continues. And it's quite, you know, if you look back to just before the 2014 referendum, say 2013, less than 10 years ago. It would have been impossible to imagine that you would have had poll after poll that put it on a knife edge. And that's where we are. It's 50 50. Scotland was probably 70 30 at the time. So there's been a huge shift in that time. And I just don't see how, unless there's some massive constitutional reform, you know, at the root of this is the union as currently structured just doesn't work. The solution from people like the kind of muscular unions, like Boris Johnson and many others in the kind of telegraph commentary class seems to be even more centralization of power to Westminster. They seem to have this idea that like what devolution has done is created a class of what they call devocrats and it's all kind of self-fulfilling. It's all rent-seeking. There might be some truth to that, but devolution also kind of fulfilled something that was a huge desire. And the idea that you can try and re-centralise power strikes me as, as, as impossible. So... I kind of coined this phrase a while ago, I'm sure somebody else used it too, of a zombie union. This idea that like basically the union continues on in its current form, but in a really broken way. So Scotland isn't quite ready to vote for independence and polls would probably suggest that I don't think the SNP are going to go on to have a referendum before they think they're going to win it. At the moment, the polls are very tight, are still tight. But there's a groundswell of popular opinion in Scotland that doesn't want to be part of this anymore. You can see some evidence of that in Wales. The Northern Irish conversation is changing far faster than I ever thought would have been possible. Meanwhile, you have a government in London that seems to think that the answer is things like a union unit within the Cabinet Office that wants to put flags on vials of COVID vaccine.
0: But also, it's not, it's not at all clear to me anyway that Johnson cares at all about the union. I mean, Theresa May, you got the sense, yes, she is an old-fashioned conservative and unionist. The United Kingdom means something to her, but... If the breakup of the union then meant Johnson could rule in England, you know, for his, until he got bored, it seems to me that he wouldn't. He wouldn't be too bothered by that.
1: I would very much agree. Johnson seems to be a politically expedient politician, far more so than most. You know, the endless like column inches I think have almost been wasted on. Is he really a liberal? Is he really a free marketeer? Is he really this? Is he really a? He is whatever he thinks will get him into power and keep him there. Whether in London it's one thing, in, in England it's another thing in the 2019 general election, and, and onwards, you know, he, he has a, it's pure political expediency. And we know there was some really interesting polling came out during the height of the Brexit, long-running Brexit saga, that showed a majority of Conservative voters were willing to sacrifice the Union for Brexit. A large majority, I think it was about 70, 75% would happily see Scotland and Northern Ireland drift off into the distance. Even a majority were happy to see the Conservative Party cease to exist so long as they got Brexit. Johnson knows this. So he has got, I think he has almost no emotional attachment uh, to the union. and But what's interesting is even under Theresa May, I do think she had an emotional attachment to it, but they start, the union stopped being a relationship. And I think this happened a while ago. The union stopped, even the language around it's interesting, like the precious union Theresa May to talk about, they talked about it like you talk about a grand piano in your living room. You, know, you couldn't imagine it not being there. It really holds the room together. But you're, you're damned if you're going to play the thing and you're damned if you're going to give it a huge amount of attention and you're certainly not going to give it attention if there's something else that you'd rather give attention to. And it strikes me that so many Conservative leaders have said they will do anything, everything they can to fight for the Union except for something that might actually help you know, to save, to save the union. And we end up then having these circular conversations about federalism on the left of, you know, on the Fabian side of politics and the Labour side of politics. Meanwhile, we have, a cons- which you are unlikely to go anywhere ever, uh, it's a kind of phantom solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. At the same time as you have the Conservative Party, who I think have, they've stopped quite a long time ago seeing the union as something that, is an actual relationship. Michael Keating uh, who's in Edinburgh and Aberdeen the professor has written a very interesting new book on this on, on on unionism and his central thesis is that unionism has changed from being a polyvocal thing that took different forms in different places from your orange walk in Ballymena to your conservative gala in the borders of Scotland to you know your village Fate in the home counties to now coming down to one very muscular version of unionism that's really a form of British nationalism. And I think Boris Johnson embodies that is it's it's flag waving but without it's all it is is flag waving and the problem is if you're in a city like here in glasgow and you're saying what our solution to the union is to start flying the red white and blue from every government building that doesn't go down very well unless with except for with a very certain demographic of society which to be blunt with you, is never you know the loyalist vote is not enough to save the united kingdom and uh the question of Northern Ireland that Johnson saying there would never be a border down the RSC
0: and then he renegotiated the withdrawal agreement with the EU to make sure that there would be a de facto border in the ROC, his willingness to throw the DUP under the bus. And of course one leader who has resigned recently is, is Arlene Foster of the DUP. And that wasn't about, you know, any of the so she's not resigning because of any of the old mistakes she's made along the way. It's because people resign once they've lost power. they kind of powered, as with Theresa May, power has drained away. And at that point, you resign because you're already no longer in charge.
1: Yeah, what's remarkable, so Arlene Foster hasn't resigned over the Renewable Heating Incentive Scheme, the cash for Ash that saw hundreds of millions of pounds go to like kind of party supporters even people, her own spads were kind of emailing we know from from lots of great testimony they were emailing their, their relatives when calling up to get them in early to make sure they got all the money you know so she hasn't resigned over that she hasn't resigned over endless botched uh, attempts at uh, renegotiating the withdrawal agreement she hasn't resigned for any of those reasons she has she's resigned because people resigned around her she ended up in a position where f- only 15% of DUP MLA's members of the local uh, assembly at Storm had supported her. So she was basically power just drained away from her. So much so that she actually has announced that she's going to resign from the DUP altogether. So having joined the DUP as a former Ulster Unionist hardliner, she announced that um, basically the party's going in the wrong direction. It's it's choosing division, which does beg the question, you know, Arlene, what did you choose yourself? You know, she she kind of seems to decide that she's going to try and reposition herself as, as a figure that kind of tried to bring Northern Ireland together, despite for three years being the first minister of an assembly that didn't exist. And now the power's gone away from her. She's saying, you know, the DUP has left me, so I'm going to leave it too. But it is really striking because it shows she is in some ways also a product of, of, of um of Johnson's promises. You know, Boris Johnson did go to DUP conference a couple of years ago and promised them, look, there's gonna be no border in the Irish Sea when he became Prime Minister, he said it again, and then he signed up for it. And she, she ended up in the farcical position of backing him. In January of this year, Arlene Foster was talking about how the, the sea border could be a great opportunity for Northern Ireland. Within about six weeks, her name was on legal documents trying to take high court challenges to get rid of the Northern Irish Protocol. So this is a politician who, I think, had never really figured out you know where she was or what she was doing. But the only reason she left office was because she had no choice to. She was defenestrated. And her attempt subsequently to paint it as a kind of a departure because the DUP is going to be into a more conservative uh, space. Because it is worth flagging, the nail in the coffin for Arlene Foster was her refusal to vote against a proposal to ban gay conversion therapy in Northern Ireland. So, in a way, there's some scintilla of truth to that. And there was within the DUP, which probably. More than any party of significance in Western Europe, is, is it's tied to a church, the Free Presbyterian Church. A large number of members come from the church before foster the church was the big thing and almost certainly the next leader it looks likely; edwin poots is, seems to be the front runner he's from the church too so there is a social side to it but the reality is exactly that she was happy to um to try and keep the church at bay as the leader of the up and to do things that that they would like but the problem was once her power was gone it was gone and that was the only thing that forced her out of office yeah,
0: and then like coriolanus saying to the you know to the rest of the romans i banish you but but and presumably, the point will come, eventually, Johnson, either he'll lose the general election, they, who's to say when, or for whatever reason, the, the Tory party turns against him. It's hard to see why they'd do that if, if, unless he'd lost an election. But he, he, nothing that has happened so far has led him to resign. So he will only go once in the same way as with Foster once, you know, the, the power has already left him.
1: Possibly the biggest challenge to Boris Johnson is his own is his own behaviour, but not necessarily in terms of standards in public life. It's his tendency to bring people close to him and then push them away massively. So, the, all these leaks come from Dominic Cummings on some level, or a lot of them do. The current leaks that we're seeing around the refurbishment and and all these other things, the bodies piling high, that's somebody that Boris Johnson brought really close to him and then pushed him away. And John, in Cummings, in, some, in Cummings offence, which is a sentence I'm not sure I've ever said before, in Cummings offence, he was reacting to Boris Johnson deciding to put the knife into him. And Boris Johnson does seem to be a man who, who likes a bit of hubris. He did put the he was almost publicly skating about David Cameron and Greensill. He said he was going to open these investigations in a way he normally never does because he saw an opportunity without really thinking, is this going to come back to bite me because of my connections? Because a lot of the same issues with the Greensill scandal are, are part of his government, the same conflict. Of interest, the same revolving doors. He has a tendency to bring people very close to him and then very publicly shun them. He's done it with a number of senior conservatives already, senior figures around the Conservative Party. He's not particularly liked by Conservative MPs, they don't really trust him. The European Research Group, people like that, the kind of hard Brexit right to the Conservative Party, saw him as a vehicle to get what they wanted, which succeeded. There isn't a huge amount of trust and love for him in the party though so there is the potential that he gets to a point where he has frankly pissed off enough conservative mps that they can take again and which is in some ways is what happened to margaret thatcher she got to the point where the goodwill for her within the party had drained away albeit it took 11 years johnson is cushing through goodwill at a much quicker rate than uh, than thatcher was so in some ways that might be the biggest threat to him unfortunately for the opposition for Labour while the things that they're talking about around sleeves probably are sticking to Johnson but behind the scenes you've people like Rishi Sunak manoeuvring already very much image management spending a lot of time and money on their own image to be the successor and the question is do the public want what Labour's offering are they happy to have Does it come up time where they're happy to have what the Conservatives are offering but just want somebody else rather than Boris Johnson to sell it to them
0: Oh Michael Gove as well because there is the idea that it's kind of if you Gove as a former Times journalist Johnson and a Telegraph journalist it's the kind of and it's the t- a lot of these stories are coming out in the Times and the Sunday Times and you know suggestions that I mean I don't based, based on I don't know dodgy textual analysis saying that one of Cummings's recent blog posts sounded more like Gove than Cummings I don't know how you how you judge that but so the idea that this whole thing is a sort of a maneuvering but again and that in, in terms of that is the Westminster bubble in terms of these I mean another revolving door as well as between business and, and politics is the re- between politics and journalism and the, and how much this is the Times and the Telegraph and, and the Mail of course and that Gove's wife Sarah Vine writes to the Mail and so there is this there is a sense in which he's not wrong that there's a there's a Westminster bubble aspect to it Oh yeah
1: I think there is there's a, there's a Westminster bubble but there's also like again it's part of the way like I think British politics has change is going too far like there's always been a you know Churchill wrote, uh, Athley wrote, lots of people were journalists before they got into public office. But in some ways, more and more, it is kind of politics by journalists. Even the way politics works now, it's kind of the speed at which things turn around, the sense of which it's about getting towards the, to the end of every day, getting to every deadline, getting to the next bit of it. And so, and the, ne- the kind of really close relationship between newspapers and and politicians and it's hard not to see some aspects of this within some of these power plays. it's very interesting to see how these stories have been picked up because had they not been picked up they would have ran i think they they would have ran into the sand you know i spend a lot of my time writing this stuff it is not easy to get the bbc to care about it and frankly to have so many you know today programs framed by what Boris Johnson did what David Cameron did newsnight discussions i was joking with a friend of mine who is an anti corruption expert that she's on newsnight so often these days they should get her own couch because and this is a kind of job that she would never have done before because they weren't asking these questions and you know none of this somebody who knows about it is, is surprising because the whole system doesn't work so it's not surprising it's happening but the very idea the, the impetus to really take these stories and run with them does come from a, at a level of like making a judgement call and some of it's about obviously there's a huge news value in it the Greensill story was really taken up by the Financial Times if it wasn't for them it would never have, I think ever have been excavated but the Sunday Times really ran with it similarly the um, the Boris Johnson story and there is you know it's hard to avoid the sense in which a lot of British politics plays out within the media but it might be it might sound Westminster bubble but that then actually goes way beyond it because it frames how all of these things are discussed it frames how the BBC covers stuff it frames how na- and these newspapers might take their lines from Westminster but they are still national titles and how are politics Politics is framed does make a huge difference especially when it comes to, to broadcast because in some ways that's where the real benefit is because you know unlike in America we don't have we have imparti- basically impartiality legislation around broadcasting whereas the press might lean very heavily to the right broadcast has to try and do a different job but broadcast takes its lines from the press massively so when the press runs with something it means the bbc can do something about it the bbc is never going to go out in a limb on these stories but if the press is all over them, the bbc is usually bound to cover it, and then it then be- does become a national story so it's really interesting to see the choices almost of ha- what stories start to get really really pushed and clearly this story um, because these investigations have been opened the commission commissioners i don't see how this story doesn't continue to run. Unlike the David Cameron and Greensill story, where there's a sense in which, OK, maybe we know what's happened, we can make judgments on it. There's still more than enough around Boris Johnson and this flat refurbishment to suggest there's things we don't know. And there's things that the Conservative Party doesn't want to be made public. And that's why they're refusing to answer quite straightforward questions like, you know, who paid for the fancy carpet and the fancy curtains?
0: Like everyone, I, I look forward to, to finding out. Peter Gagan thank you very much Thank you very much for having me You can read Peter Gagan's piece in the current issue of the LRB along with Adam Schatz on Edward Said Seamus Perry on Seamus Heaney and Rosa Lister at the Aswan Dam